and welcome to Contourcast. My name is Kat Boyd and I'm joined with my co-host David Jameson. How's it going? You're, it's in, going fine. you're in a different locale today. Where's that? Um, I'm in Perth. Hmm. But I've been here all week and it's been really nice. Um, and I've been on holiday today and that's been wonderful. Went and saw some ospreys. Uh, what are those again? <laughs> they're like birds of prey ah i was thinking of some sort of like emu or something <laughs> at the extent of my sort of uh my my natural history knowledge uh my sort of richard attenborough i mean i don't really know anything about like birds and things like that but like ospreys are cool big big birds with big wings and big claws and they have that eye thing where it looks like they've drunk too much coffee do you know what I mean? Where they're like really like oh intense. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just for I was just thinking there of uh, what's that bit in Alan Partridge where they go to the the Owl Sanctuary. Yeah, it's a great place for a date. I mean, I'm sure it is. Um, this is a cracking os os place sanctuary, but they also try and um, they're trying to bring back red squirrels as oh. well. I love um, all that stuff. I, I've never seen a red squirrel. Really? Never seen one. Well, I remember when they were in the central belt. I mean, I remember <laughs> going to the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh and it was still full of them. And if, of course, if you go there now, they're all grey squirrels. This, this conversation has reactionary undertones. Well, to be honest, I mean, I think <laughs> I do attach. I think I do attach. I mean, the fact that they're North American. Do you know what I mean? I do attach a kind of sort of reactionary anti-Americanism to it that why, you know, just as your your music, your shit music and your shit films and your shit comic books and your shit fashion trends and your shit political trends and your shitty subcultures keep flooding in waves over uh, continental Europe, so do your obviously, the animals. Your obviously inferior rodents. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? There's no way you can claim that a grey squirrel is attractive as a red squirrel. No, they're not. The red squirrels like have those little tufty ears. Um, grey squirrels are, I mean, I'm sure I've talked about my squirrel thing on this pod before. Um, they're very bold. They've been emboldened by the pandemic. Mm. I mean, if you go to the botanics in Glasgow, a squirrel will come and harass you on a bench. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's like the equivalent of being in Edinburgh during the festival where you get harassed by poshos saying, come see my show. Uh -huh. It's more like squirrels in the botanics being like, give me your fucking lunch. Yeah. No, no, no. If you try and hold out some wee nuts for them or whatever, they're all over you in seconds. I don't want nuts. They want your fucking wallet so they can go to Starbucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, go they're Go and see the latest uh, Marvel marvel films i'd had I, I mean i had i didn't even know that, that marvel thing was still going on i think my brain's just shut that out for the last 10 years what marvel yeah and then That's i was in the cinema arguably recently. a worse american export than gay squirrels i was in the um, cinema recently and i just another advert came came on and i think it had that Cumberbatch in it and he was doing the most ridiculous shit and I was like I thought I had this idea that you were like a real actor because he was in that Power of the Dog is that what it's called? 
Yeah. Um, which, uh, to be honest, found a bit slow. But anyway, I haven't, I haven't watched it. It's not. It doesn't look like my sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's. It, but it's a. It's a real film. It's not a film where everyone has lasers coming out of the fucking hands. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, and then, they, but then he was there. He was in one of these adverts, like blowing up cars and aimlessly. Um, and I just thought, I can't believe this is still going on. How many fucking films do you need to see where Cumberbatch and who's that one who's Iron Man, terrible coke addiction? I don't know any of them. I've not seen them either. I'm not going to see Robert them. Down- Robert Downey Jr. and all these other people are blowing things up with lightning coming out their eyes and farting fireballs on people and all this crap. I just don't I don't understand like how many times you can go and watch that film without it becoming boring. Um did I send you that excellent meme about the Marvel films that I found? No. So it's um you know, you know that kind of um real based sketch of like a left winger and he's got a neck he's black and white he's got a neck beard and little glasses it's just mm-hmm. like a black and white drawing. Mm-hmm. And it's like him looking at the bible being like was this written for children the world is much more gray than this and then the next panel is him being like <laughs> one again <laughs> it's got a marvel logo <laughs> no no yeah, totally. no i bet seriously there must be a, a massive overlap between people with kind of militant atheist type ideas and people and, and grown men um with those little pork pie hats and the neck beards you look, I suppose, a bit like a kind of bloated Amish, uh, ironically, playing video games and uh, and reading Marvel comics and going to see the Marvel uh, films. But this is this is uh, territory we've tread before. Obviously, the the infantilization uh, of of the of the adults. Yeah, I mean, I went. I did go see. I did go see the the batman the batman yeah the batman uh i mean i went because i just like i actually needed to just be distracted for a night Mm -hmm. so i mean it was it was fine it was kind of boring but it's a weird thing where like the batman in it so it's robert pattinson that plays batman and he is like He's like an outsider, loner type, you know, doesn't have anyone close to him. Sort a, bit of. Like, a bit like his character in that other tween age thing that made him famous. Uh, Twilight. Yeah. Have, I haven't seen that either. So right. I, I, I don't know, but he's, he plays like a sort of outsider, loner Batman. So he's Bruce Wayne, but he's Bad like Batman. sort of, he's alienated. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> And he's like thin in a sort of like druggy looking way. And he's yeah. got like computers and he's always in the basement and, you know, he's haunted and all that sort of stuff. And the theme tune is, uh, I don't know if you know this, but it's a cover of Something in the Way by Nirvana. All right. It's got this whole like moody loner vibe. Whereas like the last Batman was like this super Chad, like as Bruce Wayne, Christian Bale was like a real Chad womanizer. Like a rich boy yeah and I, just I wonder what like this shift says about like american popular consciousness yeah i mean christian bale i suppose is believable as 
a hard person, right? At least, you know, if if only because we've had his meltdown. He's an American psycho. Oh, yeah, because he was an American psycho. But also because we've had his meltdowns on various film sets and so on, and he's quite a dysfunctional person anyway. I love him. I love he's him. Really I think he's, he's really good. I mean, he's so hot. He's so insane. Um, the two things obviously <laughs> being related. Um, and he's an incredible actor. What's that to love? I mean, I suppose it did. I, I kind of feel bad now for sort of enjoying those films at the time because, you know, I mean, I just kind of feel like that's one of the things. I mean, I know that the superhero shit had been going for obviously the latest wave of it predated all that, the Christopher Nolan Batman films. Um, but I do feel like it, it helped to legitimise, because those were seen as kind of real, like, I mean, proper middle-brow films with good actors and high production values and all that kind of stuff. And it kind of legitimised yet another slew of just Marvel slurry. Um, this is the thing, is like, isn't that insane? That, like, well, when I was going to see the the Batman there was like signs up everywhere saying this film is a 15 and you will be asked for ID. And I'm like, it's Batman. It's for children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there just is this thing, like, you know, in the last like couple of decades where children's films get this like adult reboot. And at the end of the day, no matter how dark and moody they try to make Batman, He's still got a little hat with ears on it. Yeah, yeah. There's no hope getting away from that. It's like a little black hat with little pointy ears, and it's very cute. <laughs> I mean, it's really camp. It's really cute. That's why, like, the old, um, like, Adam West-type Batman things work so well, because it's high camp, like, overly stylized, like, all that kapow boom thing do you know what I mean like comic bookie he's still like just a man in a little outfit with a wee hat and the ears there's mm. no getting away from that you can do all the moody nirvana covers you like it's still just going to be like you can't take it seriously would you say the same thing about her majesty the queen I asked this because <laughs> that, that is a segue as a segue uh I suppose you could say the royal family is entering a dark phase because the next monarch is obviously going to be uh, what's his what's his chops Charles, um, who I mean the weird institution right. I was looking at the. I don't really understand why people get so upset about the these Queen speeches. Like yes, it's archaic. Yes, it's hardly the acne of democracy, this monarch coming out and reading out the priorities of an invariably Tory government as it is now. Um, But, you know, every state has its forms of mystification and traditions and and so on. But I was thinking, Charles, man, you're looking fucking old. Like, you're in the 70s, isn't he? Yeah. And I thought, you're just about to start your job. You're just. It's a sin. It's a sin to, to start a, a new job at 70, um, or perhaps older. Uh, and he looked so tired. <laughs> and I was thinking, though, because the royal members of the royal family are sort of kept artificially alive for so long and in work for so long, I thought this could be the start of, you know, 
you know, a half decade stint for you. Medical science is improving all the time, right? How old's the queen? She's in her 90s. And, and she's still working. She's still a working. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, well, well, that is if you believe the propaganda machine that she's still alive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think she has been dead for some months. Yeah, I mean, they, I'm, <laughs> I'm in, not doing another Alan Partridge reference. Yeah. But I think the Queen is dead. I think she's been dead for some time. I think they are using a combination. I mean, this is me, like, this is actual, I believe this conspiracy theory. No, you don't. I think they're using a combination of deep fakes. And her old body doubles. And, and yeah, and body doubles. Because she was out today, I think, at something. But it didn't, it just didn't quite look right. Like, I th- and I think that they're trying to work out how to manage Charles so that they can get William on the throne. Well, do you know, uh, among uh, royal watchers, I think there is always, there's been a, a faction, probably very minority, because they, they're not known for their kind of critical interpretations, but I think there's been a faction who say, look, just skip a generation. Right? Yeah. Nobody likes Charles. No, I mean, nobody. nobody's a fan of old Charlie. No. Please tell me you saw that, uh, the Sun headline. No. Oh, David, it's so brutal. Let me just double check. It was actually the sun. I'm was sure it something, of it. Something about Charlie. It was, um, so Charles was doing the, he was obviously doing the, the Queen's speech instead of his mm-hmm. mother. Mm-hmm. And so he was sitting there. It was the sun. Of course it was. Um, so this is the sun on Wednesday, the 11th of May. And it's a full front page number. Um. And the headline indicating that, yes, we live in a completely normal country is, I hope I did you proud, mummy. (laughs) (laughs) It's the mummy thing that makes it creepy, really, isn't it? Um, You just just instantly sort of think of Norman Bates. Uh, Yeah, with a headline like that. but I hope I did you proud, mummy. I mean, let see if she is alive. Let the poor woman retire, right? Yeah, that's that's what I don't get. I know. So she's kind of a traditionalist, apparently, and she has a view. They say it's her view that um, that she won't retire until she is what dead or incapacitated. So that is traditionally, of course, what monarchs did. Literally, authority would transfer on the deathbed. Uh, in a lot of royal families but is that really a tradition that's worth keeping alive? I don't really understand why I mean, I mean even the Pope can retire these days even the Pope like Benedict, Benedict, I mean that was a real shocker yeah, yeah. like if the Pope can do it, the Queen can do it right, so this would be my ideal scenario we'll, the Queen gets to retire right and then we say collectively as people, he's have had enough now, right? That's it. That's it done, right? She's retired. Let's wrap up the whole thing and just be done with it. No more, no more of this monarch thing. I mean, the thing, the thing about um, back when monarchs actually ruled, um, I suppose there are good reasons why they can't retire until they're dead. 
because the whole point about having a monarchy is that it creates stability. That's the idea around it anyway. Um, if you did have retirement for monarchs, there would always be a question of, uh, are they the power behind the throne? In which case, are they unaccountable to forces they might otherwise be accountable to? Uh, and, of course, as in Shakespeare's Hollow Crown, um, the suspicion is if you ever moved away from the throne, you'd be killed, right? I mean, this is, uh, this is what they say about Putin. Like he, that he's desperately trying to construct an exit strategy for himself um, because the feeling is that as soon as you step away from the centre of power, your rivals get you, basically. Uh, and that's the price you pay for a kind of... a system of power that's personal, you know what I mean, uh, that, that ultimately comes down to the personality of the usually man, sometimes woman in charge, is... Ultimately, personal rule is very dangerous for the person. Um, but, yeah, I mean, whereas the only danger today is sort of PR, which is an interesting shift. So in the case of Benedict, he had to disappear completely from public life. I mean, he basically hasn't been seen at all. And I think he took like a vow of silence. He wouldn't talk about theological matters. He wouldn't talk about church governance anymore. He would have no opinion officially on anything. Uh, after he left the role, because the danger was you end up with two popes disputing each other's legitimacy, right? Which, of course, once did actually happen in the Catholic Church split. Uh, so I suppose the idea is that if, if she had retired 10 years ago, she would be in a position to criticise Charles's PR efforts, which is the extent of his rule uh, by this point. But it just all seems incredibly petty. I mean, the worst... The worst PR disaster has already befallen the royal family. It already looks ridiculous. I mean, the worst several. I mean, Prince Andrew. Yeah, I was like, which one's the worst? Which, which is the worst? The sweaty prince, probably. Um, I think this. I think the sweaty prince is like objectively more immoral, like, but it's probably less. Yeah, damaging. like the most immoral, <laughs> the most disgusting. But probably but... less damaging than the the uh, the export of the franchise to the United States. Don't even like I honestly they're my they're my least favorite royal. No, wait, I'm probably going Andrew at the bottom. Yeah, I think you've got to say sweaty prince. You've, you've got to go sweaty nonsense prince. Yeah. <laughs> and then then Harry and Meghan. Oh just cannot st- I saw a tweet that said um it was a news story about how Meghan Markle has employed one of Barack Obama's former PR gurus to give herself an image makeover so she can go into politics. Uh, I could fucking write this. Uh, (laughs) It's so obvious that that is what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Disgusting. I wonder wonder if they'll turn into a wee dynasty to themselves over there. Um, So... uh, I'm sorry for that, America. You gave us... You gave us Grey Squirrels and Marvel. We gave you the Royals. Some of our inbred creatures. Yeah, some of our inbred nutters. Uh, Thankfully, of course, this will all be behind us very soon uh, because of the looming promise of Scottish independence, which is closer now than ever because of the local election results in which the SNP were thoroughly rewarded 
for doing nothing on independence. Can you name any local government, like any of the policies the SNP stood on? Ease the squeeze. <laughs> Everyone knows ease the squeeze. I only know ease the squeeze from um, Sean, the guy from Twitter who does the videos. I think I probably wouldn't have known the slogan were it not. I wouldn't have known about Ease the Squeeze if it hadn't been for uh, Sean. I don't know. What's Sean's surname? We don't know, but he's at shinyboy01, I think, on Twitter. You might have seen his stuff. He makes uh, little videos sending up the SMP, which, to be honest, about, like, even that long ago in our lifetimes would have been the sort of political comedy that would end up on TV. And we yeah, just yeah. don't have that sort of thing anymore. Like, it's yeah. good-natured. It's not offensive, even though people have managed to somehow take terrible offence at it. Um, uh, but he did a video that had a very annoying theme tune <laughs> um, where the words were simply, ease the squeeze, ease the squeeze, which was the campaign slogan on the side of the SNP gravy bus. It's the sort of thing that um, uh, the B BBC, the social, would commission <laughs> if they weren't so completely just under the thumb and boring uh, and conformist. I mean, it was his comedy videos were the highlight of the local elections for me. Yeah, which is saying something uh, really about how dismal it was. Fewest number of candidates stood ever in a Scottish local election. There are places in Scotland where like candidates weren't even electorally challenged. They were basically put themselves forward and then that's them right you in because nobody else stood. Yeah, so there was a record number that was uncontested wins. Uh, that's the word I was looking for, uncontested. Uh, there, I think, a turnout was down to 43%. But in many working class wards, it was way below that. It was down... It was like in the 30s. 30s, some of them into the 20s. Uh, so it was... And if you think about it, um, like the electorate, of course, is not the population. There are large parts of the population who can't vote. Uh, people under, uh, well, kids, uh, immigrants, prisoners, etc. cetera. Um, I mean, once you've got, I mean, there was one ward, I think in North Glasgow, that was at 28% turnout, which must be under one in four. Uh, of the population voting in an election. So that's the state of local elections. Local elections usually have bad turnout, but that's still pretty fucking bad. Um, so that is that is basically the outcome of the election. Like you can just see that Scottish politics basically mirrors the same alienation as exists elsewhere in the UK. Uh, there were other parts of the UK which also had record uncontested seats as well. So it's not it's not a uh, uh, unique to Scotland. Hull, which is seen as this kind of bellwether now, uh, had an absolutely measurable turnout. It was lower than the one that I just quoted for uh, was it Hull or was it no, it was Hartlepool because that was the one that's the bellwether now that um, because the Tory took it and so on in the recent by-election. Um, so there are whole towns, whole cities where turnout is just collapsing. Because it just remains to be seen how long that can go on for. Um, and the assumption is that the, 20, uh, the 2024 general election 
if it is held then, because of course the five-year parliament limits have been scrapped, the five-year parliaments. So uh, if it is then, we're going to be voting once again on whether or not to hold an independence referendum. And this can just go on and on and on and on for God knows how long. I mean, the turnouts are one thing. I don't think that the turnouts will improve anytime soon at local elections. I think it's partly to do with the nature of local elections. Um, <clears throat> I think this is this is why like a lot of that like left wing analysis about like, well, you know, people care about these bread and butter issues about like services um, and funding local services and what happens to them. Um, but I think people rightly see them through the prism of big politics a lot of the time. Do you know what I mean? Like, so mm. actually the people who end up mobilised to vote in local elections are predominantly the middle class, yeah. um, which I think is reflected really obviously in, in the results um, because the SNP are the party of middle class Scotland. Mm -hmm. um, that idea of them being like a mass party, the huge surge in membership that happened after the referendum in 2014, we're just not living in that <laughs> that reality anymore. Like this is a party, the same way the Labour Party were for a long time, is a party for middle class people to vote for where their material interests are essentially taken care of, but that they can still feel that they are doing, doing their bit for wider society because it's softer around the edges than any mm -hmm. of the alternatives. And mm -hmm. um, I think then in Scotland, you add in things like Brexit, um, it's really obvious to me that, that that's what's happening. Um, I, I don't actually know many people who can say what the SNP's manifesto for local government entailed, um, but people are just kind of, I mean, we're in this real stasis in Scotland politically. It's just, there's absolutely no way the SNP deserve to run Glasgow City Council after the last administration. And they did. Uh, I mean, the Labour have also forfeited that right. I know. Um, and I mean, we have to put in context that people in Glasgow voted for a Labour Council forever. <laughs> I mean, it was quite a big deal when the SNP like, finally took over Glasgow City Council, remember, not that long ago. I do feel like the sheen is coming off quite quickly of the SNP. I think that's reflected in the turnouts. Um, but at the end of the day, there's no, I don't feel like there's been like huge changes in Scotland. I saw a tweet, I think it was from Ross Cahoon from the SNP, and he had tweeted a graph depicting the, the rising vote share for the SNP over like the last 15 years. Um, compared to other political parties and he was like and this is after you know 15 years in power the SNP's vote share is still going up and I'm like this is not a good thing this is not a good thing this is a this is a party who in their position within the Scottish Parliament have presided over multiple failures objective failures like Ferries, education, the COVID care home crisis, drugs deaths, the Scotland stuff. Like these are objective disasters for Scotland. Mm -hmm. And yet still we keep voting for them. It reminds me a hell of a lot of new labor because it's we're often politics in this country 
it just comes down to being anti-Tory and it's just not good enough and the left need to get out of that mentality it's not good enough just to say like oh we all hate the Tories like <laughs> that's that's landing us with very very mediocre governments mediocre politicians who have mediocre programs um I was watching I don't know why I do this to myself but I was watching some kind of young musician on BBC's debate night which is kind of like a Scotland mini question time and she and she sort of just announced she, she elaborated what by now is kind of this the thing that people in Scotland say like she was saying why don't you down in London learn from Scotland you know and she sort of listed off the famous um a sort of litany of uh, tuition fees, um, uh, baby boxes, um, uh, prescription charges. And I was listening to this stuff, and prescription charges and um, tuition fees, and that kind of stuff. These, these are really old uh, policy changes, right? These are from, well, actually, they have a legacy in the first Labour governments in the Scottish Parliament. But even to the extent they are policies from the early SNP administrations are from right at the start um, under Salmon's uh, administration. I mean, you can't just keep saying those two policies over and over again. Uh, but, it, but the whole point of it was, yeah, we're forging a new way in Scotland. We're obviously not. I mean, I don't understand why people are still saying this. Elsewhere in the UK, by the way, they got much more value for money from the sale of seabeds not that that would satisfy I mean, the problem is in large part who it's being sold to for what purposes what return we get in the future so on and so on and so forth but even on that single policy the idea that we're doing we're breaking new ground in scotland politically is just nonsense um this idea of kind of there are these kind of good people countries like scotland finland new zealand and we're forging ahead, we're forging a new path. I've listened to this stuff for years and years, and it's all crap. Um, it's all completely meaningless. If anything, Scotland's sort of politically retarded. I mean, we're backward. Um, because we're still embracing a kind of mythos of the third way. We're still embracing a mythos of, you know, anti-confrontational politics. The Greens, after their victory, released a bunch of bizarre PR where they said... Um, what did they call it? Something like green collaborative politics. People in Scotland have rewarded the Greens for their collaborative approach to politics, obviously a reference to the, um, the Scottish government. And I'm just thinking, well, right, apart from anything else, right, I mean, I could critique that on its own merits. What really happened, by the way, is the Greens just abandoned all their policies, right? Uh, I don't know what kind of collaboration that is. It's a pretty one-way collaboration. But in any case, that's not the point. The point is this idea of like uh, there's a new there's a new sort of political horizon based on collaboration and cooperation ahead of competition. That was the whole kind of founding ethos of the Scottish Parliament. Remember, it's like it's a kind of horseshoe because we don't want people facing each other like at nasty Westminster and having arguments because that would be bad, wouldn't it? You can't have people arguing and disagreeing. Instead, what we'll try and do is have a consensus of middle-class interests where no one argues about the interests. And it, do you know what I mean? Uh, and like, we'll all just kind of agree in a kind of horseshoe where no one faces each other that, that um, big business needs to 
have the right to buy off all our nat, nat, uh, natural assets. So, like, it's we're, we're frozen. Like, we're trapped in, in this meaningless, useless frame. Uh, and you see Scotland's small collection of public intellectuals just uh, drag this stuff up over and over again. That, you know, the problem with Westminster is that it's kind of macho, um, you know, it's, it's kind of forceful, competitive, masculine politics. And what we need is a kind of soft, consensual, cooperative uh, politics that obviously sort of benefits babies and small children uh, and all this weird shit. Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon calling herself national mammy um, <clears throat> and so on. Uh, but I just, I don't know what it's going to take to break this. Um, but but it's suffocating. Uh, it's not very democratic in ethos uh, or execution. And... Maybe. And it's not it's not good for fucking children or whatever. I mean, I, I, I mean, like this the obsession about um, child poverty. On the one hand, it's grotesque because once again, it's that kind of militant wing of Oxfam thing, right? But on the other hand, uh, zero progress, none, zero progress has been made towards a goal that every single party in the parliament heralds every single year and repledges themselves to in every single election. We've now had coming on for a quarter of a century of these promises every single year and in every single election and zero progress has been made. I mean, it's worse than, like, actually see the idea of someone saying, like, in 2022, that the peak of achievements of the SNP in power in Scotland is fucking tuition fees. I mean, oh. that, 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 like... All that stuff, like the tuition fees, like being like further education being made completely free is like 2008, isn't it? Hmm. It's 2008, right? Like that's, and you're right, it does have roots that go back further. But I'll tell you what, free tuition doesn't mean fucking anything if you are in a community where people are dying left, right and centre from drug overdoses. Yeah, obviously. Do you know what I mean? Or your life is ravaged by addiction. Like, and this is the problem, is that there isn't something that says, okay, free tuition, and we're going to, like, address, like, these conditions as well. There's none of that. Like, I can't believe someone's still, like, saying that that is the peak of the achievement. It's fucking scraps. But it's also, and I'm not one of these people who just says, like, everyone who goes to university, you know what I mean? Like, this is purely a method that kind of helps the middle class or whatever, because I'm against the commercialization of universities and so on and so forth i'm against the entire phenomenon of what's happened to the university sector but also i mean do people not catch themselves a bit given that these are the scandals right elderly people mostly poor dying in care homes preventable deaths the drug death uh, uh situation child poverty the destruction of local services because central government has cut local authority spending and on and on and on cost of living prices crisis right on and on and pe the best answer people still have to that is but i went to university for free I'm, I'm, not, I'm not like i'm not arguing against free tuition like i would defend that like it just does for, sound i would like... defend that forever the same with prescription charges i think it's I think it's shameful, like the way that like universal benefits 
are often spoken about like I remember it during the referendum the Labour Party saying oh, these are perks for the middle class and it's like mm. well they're not perks for the middle class but it's not the best that people should expect like that's that I suppose like that's what frustrates me about it is like what a policy that was introduced 15 years ago is something that people are supposed to say oh but they did that so it doesn't matter the fact that like the actual edu education attainment gap is growing that we have more people dying like through like drugs than anywhere else in Europe yeah and that child poverty is rising year on year like this is the thing it's just like it's not good enough and like Nicola Sturgeon stands there and says that she wants to be judged on her record around education and she should be judged the problem is is like when it comes to questions of agency the people who are continually empowered are the middle classes and that's like people will keep voting for the SNP hmm. of course um no I don't think anyone at this point thinks the SNP have an alibi I don't think the most the biggest hack I don't think Nicola Sturgeon herself thinks that the SNP have an alibi for their record particularly in like the last five or six years <laughs> where it's just been one scandal after another and so many that everyone has forgotten uh, or never sort of met went into wide circulation I mean one that's just uh, continues to be astonishing to me I've now said it several times but it it's such a weird thing right the fact that we still don't know how Scotland came into lockdown so the fact that there's no paper trail because decisions aren't made that way in government anymore like the, the government doesn't write anything down uh, and has this intense culture of secrecy. So really basic day-to-day -day stuff. What I think people imagine the SNP are good at, which is sort of like liberal good governance, is non-existent. Mm. It doesn't exist. Uh, by any standard, the present government uh, uh, is, is, a, is an example of poor governance. Um, but anyway, we could go, we could go on and on. I mean, but the, I suppose, like, going back to the local elections, right, the thing that drove me nuts in the days after the results was just this kind of, like, this real contradiction in the analysis. So, you know, people talking about, well, this is all driven by, it's about the referendum. Like, it's about independence. And this, like, you know, continuing growth... Um, or like continuing voting for the SNP and um, you know I think the national newspaper ran with like some sort of like historic victory type front cover as if this is a boost for independence like but that's clearly not what's happening to me people aren't voting for the SNP at a local government level because they want independence it's also not borne out in the polls because well, nationalist movements need leadership, and this is a movement that's been left without leadership um, for nearly 10 years. <laughs> Nobody who is pushing forward day to day with a like referendum campaign, like none of the politicians of the party that's supposed to be the independence party. Mm -hmm. So you have like this group of commentators who are saying this is about um, independence. And then you look at the reality of the situation, it's like, well, clearly it's fucking not about independence like that's not the driving factor here like do you know what I mean I just felt like there was this like real pulling apart of of a picture like and I think that it is fairly complicated 
Oh yeah, I mean, I think that the it's wrong now to say I think that the SNP's vote is an independence vote, yeah. in the sense that it yes, it's part of the picture, it's vaguely in the background, and it it re remains there as a kind of standard of the SNP represents something different. I think that's what it means now. I don't think it any longer means it translates into a desire for independence. So if you look yeah. at the polls on independence. Very few people, few people support or believe that there will be a referendum in 2023, right? So the idea that there's this hunger out there for an actual process that would take us to an event is nonsense, and it's not there anymore. What it's been replaced by is this vague feeling that there is this alternative political establishment that the SNP want to aspire to, which is can be quite a powerful idea. As I think I've said before on here, you know, Eamon de Valera traded on the idea of a republic for a long time. He traded on the idea of United Ireland for even longer. Fianna Fáil were trading on the idea of a United Ireland and some the abstract idea of a United Ireland for decades and decades and decades and only started to fall apart recently, right? Um, so having that, I think, is quite a powerful thing. Saying that you can represent something almost otherworldly, right? Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't in any way represent the existing political establishment because ultimately I aspire to this grand alternative, which is kind of just a mirage in the distance. Yeah. You can't yeah. criticise it because it's, uh, mm -hmm. you're not close enough to it to really understand what it is. And then there's the sort of wider vague idea that they represent national differentiation from Westminster and a kind of moral differentiation from the Tory party. And these are all very vague but powerful ideas. Yeah. They translate ultimately into nothing. They yeah. don't translate into a different type of politics, but they give people the ability over and over again to say, Westminster doesn't represent me. They're kind of evident venality as people I don't want to be associated with, and you should think of me as a different type of person to these people and a different type of person from the kind of people I imagine vote for mm. Boris Johnson mm. down there in England, right? Mm -hmm. These are kind of the powerful ideas that are now being channeled, um, but it's not, it doesn't have any relationship to independence. And yeah. I really I really think, I mean, I did read one piece in the days afterwards saying, well, yeah, but Nicholas Sturgeon is still in trouble because next year she said there's going to be a referendum and there won't be. I think that the, the proof of this argument will be next year when Nicholas Sturgeon requests the powers again, Boris Johnson or whoever says no again. And then the, the proof is when Boris Johnson say does that, are you angry at Nicholas Sturgeon or are you angry at Boris Johnson? And if the average independence supporter, right, and again, someone who's pro-independence is like a Remain voter in the year 2000, right, who would probably be pro-EU if you asked them but I never thought the question was going to come up. I mean, that's what it is to be pro-independence now. It's like, um, it, it's having a very abstract opinion on a question that's very abstract. Or like someone who wants to rejoin the EU now, but accepts it's not going to happen. Do you know what I mean? There's still a, you can still have a political identity constructed by that idea. Yeah. But if that type of person is angry at Boris Johnson and not Nicola Sturgeon, then Nicola Sturgeon is under no pressure whatsoever to deliver a referendum. Mm. On the contrary, Imagine she requested and he said yes. She'd be like, I mean, shit the bed like Amber Hud. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like uh, you've then you've then got to come up with 
oh fuck, all that stuff we've been delaying and not talking about because it's brutal. Currencies, hard border, the European Union, like all these huge questions. Uh, I mean, I think it was Mark Blythe who uh, the economist, kind of left-wing sort of Keynesian economist to Nicholas Sturgeon brought on to one of her many, many advisory boards um, to kind of bring a kind of radical sheen into it. And he just sort of said, I think the first thing he said was, <laughs> look, if you want to do this, okay, but uh, it's Brexit times 10. So he actually said it's Brexit times 10, right, what you're actually proposing to do here. In terms of the scale of a split in a historic state like the British state which is like the first yeah. in a modern uh, state and and the complications that that will that that will bring now I, that doesn't it doesn't phase me I'm, I'm saying this like obviously now I'm not the one making the decisions right but um, I'm not saying that because I think that it's a bad idea I'm saying it because it's a bad idea if you're Nicola Sturgeon because she's just spent the last five or six years or whatever saying over and over and over again that something that brings the complications that Brexit does is unconscionable for any kind of civilised democratic society. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it, like, I mean, we're, we're a million, million miles from, from, from that sort of situation. Does that mean she's going to get found out at some point? No, because she's providing the, the social function that people seek from her right now. And I suspect Nicola Sturgeon will be long gone before this stuff starts to wear off. Um, I mean, I... Sorry, I just had a sort of brain freeze there. There was a, that piece of research that came out, I think maybe it was just in advance of the, the elections, um, where the, like, the TUC and the STUC had research saying that, you know, people care about the cost of living crisis in this, like, set of local government elections and not the referendum. And I suppose that's, I'm saying that that is partly true, but there's probably also people who are voting on the basis of the constitution. Like, that's how you end up with someone from, like, the British Unionist Party, North Lancashire. Um, but like the narrative around the cost of living crisis, I think is important in this context because, and I, you know, I've said this to you before, but I think that the part of the issue around the cost of living crisis is that the way that that is going to impact people is it's not, it doesn't, these big economic surges these big economic changes all of the turbulence that happens around the economy can land very unevenly so it's not like <laughs> i worry that some people see it like a poll tax moment mm. like inflation hits a certain level and then everyone's going to be like oh my god this is terrible like and rises up and it becomes like a political moment like but the actual impact of that is very uneven. Yeah. So, and also like the co the campaigns around the cost of living, I think are, I understand why something like the People's Assembly is starting to campaign so early on this, like as a general theme. Um, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that 
I would say there's now a consensus around the fact that the result of the EU referendum in 2016 is a delayed anti-politics, anti-establishment reaction to the austerity programmes after 2008. Like yeah. It's clearly about like living standards, alienation, immigration, all of these things. And it's a kind of like whiplash, like back against the establishment who are seen as, you know, being the champions of austerity. And like, especially the People's Assembly campaign where, you know, they're looking at engaging people in this issue and doing demonstrations. <sighs> Can I just say this as a sidebar? I was always really worried about the strategy around Corbyn and the Labour Party with the broader anti-austerity movement in England. Because what happened was, and this should be a lesson that is never forgotten, because it's something that happened in Scotland too, after the 2014 referendum, is that all of the energy and momentum, like the anti-establishment left-wing politics built up in 2014, were all subsumed into the SNP. And it meant that like that kind of like counterweight outside parliament, a kind of like actual movement, like the energy was sucked out of that when it all was driven into the SNP. When Corbyn took over the Labour Party, I understand it, all the left folded in behind Corbyn, but that project was so precarious that when it failed, it meant that those types of institutions like the People's Assembly, which had been an independent organisation, something independent of the Labour Party, left-wing, you know, had its own identity, they're basically starting from scratch again. And they're trying to like relaunch it as a membership organization. So, I mean, I, I, I get why it's starting so early, but I think the question for me around the cost of living crisis is that this is going to land unevenly. There isn't going to be like a flashpoint of where it's like really obvious, like you know, people in the streets um, rioting or, or however people see it. It's not going to happen like that. So also, I think it's very unlikely to happen through like traditional left-wing politics, like voting for a socialist party at a local election or voting for like a more left-wing party at a local election. I don't think there's going to be those types of expressions. Um, I think that there's a, a chance that any reaction to the cost of living crisis will be delayed um, yeah. and will be, uh, will be ugly. It will be an expression of working class agency that the establishment left don't like the same way Brexit was, the same way in France it was the yellow vests, in Canada there was the Canadian truckers, like these expressions of agency which are outside of the left's idea of what working class agency looks like because it doesn't look like people in the street with red flags. <laughs> it's not going to look like that. It might not look like mass strikes. In fact, it's very likely it won't look like that. Like it might look very, it might look very ugly. It might look very patriotic. You know, I think that we have to start getting our heads around that now. And the way that this ties to the local election is it gets to the heart of what I think the pro part of the problem is, is that the people who are at the sharp end of the cost of living crisis are people who have been shafted since 2008, right? So very alienated from trade unions, from political parties. Like these are people who have been systematically disempowered, who in Scotland probably felt like they had a little bit of agency when it came to 
voting in the referendum in 2014. But since then, you don't really feel like you've got a say. And that's because it's not just about the material hardship of the cost of living crisis. It's the fact that you can't do anything about it. And the people who are then in the middle, the squeezed middle, <laughs> who are affected by the cost of living crisis, like the like the professional managerial class, um, like middle class more generally, they're the people who feel a sense of agency. But the traditional solutions for that group of people within a class society are to go to those types of political parties like the SNP or similar ones that are going to just, you know, take these sensible decisions and do adult politics and that sort of thing. So I do think that there will be people who are who are impacted by the cost of living crisis, who have a sense of political power. It will be traditionally like the professional managerial class, the middle class, and when there's actual working class resistance to the cost of living crisis, and it could be five, 10 years time, it might look really, really ugly. Um, ugly is not the right word. I can't, I can't get my finger on like. Kind of like inchoate. It'll be sort of confused. It'll be a kind yeah. of. It'll be a variety yeah. of like different attitudes and opinions. Yeah. And it means all of them. It, it, it won't look like a. It won't look. It won't look how you expect to look. I suppose is my my overall message. On timing, I, I, I mean, I think it's very hard to predict this kind of stuff because. I still assume that weird shit has gone on during the lockdown that hasn't yet expressed itself. Uh, like, and this is purely anecdotal and perhaps taxi drivers and people like me say this all the time, but I was in Glasgow city center on a night out for the first time in a very long time <laughs> recently. And genuinely I thought, and look, maybe I'm just underexposed to it these days, but I was like, this is nuts. Like, this is a zoo. Like, I saw, like, so many, like, people, like, taking their kit off in the street and all that kind of stuff. And and this is, like, this is about, like, 5 p.m. Like, it was light out. This isn't, like, 2 o'clock in the morning is the sort of, you know, uh, uh, the hard core are sort of staggering home. Uh, and I spoke to the taxi driver uh, on the way back, and he went, no, it's gone nuts. He's like, people are obviously letting off steam after the lockdown. He's like, so it's things have really been on the go for the last few weeks and I've never seen kind of antics, fights, shagging, like people have kind of lost it. And he said, especially really young people who should have come in of age in the last couple of years and had their first nights out, they've all come tumbling out with kind of all these neuroses and madnesses and so on. Now, I don't know if that's true or that's just his impression or whatever it did gel with my experience i do wonder what's gone on deep in the kind of psychological sediment of society in the last couple of years including people for whom that was a very economically difficult time and we just don't know what happens when you have 10 percent inflation in a society where there are no trade unions in most workplaces to keep the pressure on wages to uh, increase with inflation. Because of course, Britain has had a history of runaway inflation uh, in, for example, the 1970s, but there were also, that is also the peak of trade union militancy and unions were very active in protecting the living standards of the members. What happens when people don't have those defensive organizations and 
you know what I mean? Like they're earning £10 an hour and now they're earning £9 an hour. I don't know like what impact that has on someone in that situation, how it influences their consciousness and psychology and so on, what the mix of kind of self-blame and self-hatred versus blaming people in positions of authority or blaming people who don't have authority and don't deserve to be blamed, all that stuff, which is just incalculable uh, on a kind of mass scale in a society of 65 million people. So uh, I can't, I have no idea what the timing will be like. I assume that there's always a delayed reaction uh, with this kind of stuff, but I agree with you. And I, I think if you're serious, you need to be prepared for the fact that it's, it's not going to emerge like a sort of, um, a sort of left of the 20th century reenactment society. I don't think class politics works like that anymore. Uh, I don't think it's just going to reemerge and there's going to be people sort of calling for cooperatives and trade unions and, and waving the red flag from a barricade, as you say. I think that that was something that had a specific time and place. I don't know um, what new political forms and organisations will look like, but from the last few years, I mean, I don't think that the yellow vest is a bad model for what that might ultimately look like. And I often think that what some people on the left didn't like about that, bearing in mind that there were people like CGT and Union in France and Mélenchon and others who did try and relate to the Yellow Vest movement. But I think one of the things that people didn't like about it was naturally the first thing it said was, a bit like the independence movement in Scotland, a bit like the movement of the squares in Greece and movements elsewhere, the first flag they raised was the national flag because there isn't really another one. There isn't a sort of designated workers' flag now. There's the national flag. And the first thing the Yellow Vest said was, we are France. This is our society. And the people who are um, oppressing us with these charges for petrol and so on, they're illegitimate. They don't represent the real France, the legitimate France. And I think that's a, an idea that a lot of people with traditional kind of left and left liberal and kind of progressive type views find disturbing, right? Because you're making a, a kind of almost like an organic claim to nationhood and to being the people and, and so on. I just don't really, I can't really imagine that any mass, genuinely mass movement, which is mobilizing people from the base of society, um, that it has another way to express itself at this point. Like, I assume yeah. it will carry kind of national ideas. I mean, I genuinely am now, I'm pretty convinced that you cannot have a successful left populist project that doesn't have a patriotic element to it. I mean, I just don't see how that works. Like, um, I think France obviously has a very particular history around that. Um, but I just, I don't think that it's possible to you know, have that kind of like anti-establishment left-wing um, movement without a degree of patriotism, like a kind of we the people sort of feel to it. And where left populism has had more successes um, are, are places where that has been embraced. Yeah, and I suppose that probably means specific challenges for people in Scotland, right? Because well, yeah, I mean, it is, it is just... I understand why people think it's manky like, to be patriotic. I get it. Like, I, I do. Um, and, you know, and back in, like, 2012, 2013, like, 
you know, when we were doing radical independence, um, you know, we argued about, well, you know, that independence isn't about the saltire. Um, you know, it's not about flags, like in flag waving and those sorts of arguments. That's 10 years ago, you know, I think <laughs> like they were the right arguments to be making at that time. But like I've always been an internationalist, but to be a true internationalist, you have to recognize the nation state and the hold that it has within people's popular consciousness. Do you know what I mean? I'm not a like I'm not in favor of, you know, we're all like <sighs> pretending to be the kind of well, like the SNP's internationalism, for example, which is predicated on international institutions like mm. the EU or NATO. Um, like I think you have to recognize like that sovereign, like there has to be a sovereignty and like the a populist populist left movement can say, yeah, we are we believe in the sovereignty of the people to have control over the economy. Um, and that means the people of Scotland having direct control over the decisions that are made about our lives. And I think that that is the the right kind of politics. I mean, I mean, internationalism, correct me if my Latin or whatever is wrong, my understanding of how words work is wrong, but like international means between nations, right? And it's, it's actually quite a useful distinction, whereas transnational, whatever that might mean, um, sort of in, in, in transnational institutions like the EU, it sort of means above the, the nation, like above the national mm. level. We've exported decision-making powers above your heads to where you can't reach it. That's not what international has meant. Like powerful international movements are one where solidarity is expressed between national peoples, right? Um, but I agree. I think the most important point there is it's so much fund is so fundamental to popular consciousness in a capitalist society it's like it's almost like um because you know like in the development of, of capitalist ideology the nation and the individual are like powerfully intertwined right and the idea of the citizen right and you having a kind of personal legal relationship to the nation state it's almost like saying like we need to have a left-wing movement that has no relationship to the idea of the individual no individuals permitted uh, in this in this movement. Trying to deconstruct existing consciousness at that level, um, it's just not something that's ever going to happen. Politics is something that happens at a national level. It's not in the foreseeable future. It's not going to be something that ever happens at a non-national level. Like international as well doesn't mean non-national. Um, but in any case, I mean, but that's not to say either that. Um, of course, nationalist ideas, being rooted in nationalist ideas means that they can go in various different directions. And in each of those contexts, like Greece, France, Scotland, they have. They have sort of fired off in different directions. But that's the nature of the game. Like, and in each of those, uh, in each of those national contexts, that outcome is, has been a failure, partly conditioned by a failure of a radical left that can successfully um, uh, kind of intervene in that consciousness. It, or, I mean, in France, obviously, there's been more successful attempts. Scotland is like a desert for progressive in initiative on that front, let's be honest, by this, by this stage. And in Greece, of course, there was a famous collapse of the radical left. Uh, 
on the question of the European Union. Mm. Um, so it's not like, well, you should have known it was all going to go wrong in Greece from, from this moment you saw a Greek flag in a square, right? <laughs> the moment you saw a Greek flag in a square, you knew you were going to end up with a kind of like the right-wing new democracy government that they presently have. That was not inevitably going to be the outcome. Um, one last um, point to make about uh, this, well, future situation. Ukraine is not like a separate issue here. Um, I read an article in that compact mag uh, in America, which made a point, it's one of these annoying articles, because as soon as I saw the headline, I thought, why didn't I write that? And the article was something like the return of liberal nationalism, which is not, I mean, it's so obvious that it's true, but you can, you can see it very kind of flagrantly around uh, Ukraine. Like, um, there, there, there is a return of kind of establishment nationalism. I mean, and, and the politics of flags and so on. Um, and like the idea of liberalism and nationalism, especially taken in a kind of imperialistic di direction, is once again a very real force mm -hmm. uh, in contemporary politics. I mean, I think it's been a long time since we've done one of these pods. It's been weeks. I don't know how many weeks, but obviously the war was fresher at that point. And it has been fascinating to watch it. It's, I mean, it's still at the top of the news agenda, the official news agenda, but it's um, for so many people who are calling for witch hunts of Putinites and so on, it's really dropped off their radar. Yeah. I think yeah. I wrote an article on Connor saying that it didn't survive Will Smith slapping that guy at the Oscars, right? I mean, that that was the turning point I noticed. Uh, all these kind of born-again Ukrainian nationalists and uh, NATO files were, uh, <laughs> I mean, their commitment lasted as long as a, one of the men in black slapped someone. Um, so, like, but it, that I think that was an important moment. I mean, it was important that so many people slid into the most aggressively imperialistic ideas and attitudes and arguments mm. so quickly. Um, and that's a serious danger in this, in this situation as well. I mean, talking about 10 years ago, it is bizarre how far the Scottish political scene has quietly, silently sort of moved to the right in that period. And I don't think there's a really, yeah. really be a question that it's moved to the right and in, and in directions that I would not have guessed then, I would have told you then that, like, oh, the SNP don't have any real ambitions for alleviating child po poverty. We have to, somebody think of the children um, alleviating child poverty, because I know that no government in Scotland has done that or yeah. gives a shit, right? I probably wouldn't have guessed that the lowest and grottiest types of, like, British and Western and US imperialism would be celebrated in some of the corners that it now is. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously not just something that's happening in Scotland or the UK. Um, it's the same in the States. I mean, the left in the States is pretty much silent on the amount that the US is now committed to spending on the war in Ukraine. Um, you have all of the members of the squad voting for these huge packages 
yeah. towards the war in Ukraine, like your AOCs, like these are kind of great hopes for the American um, the American left, um, despite the fact that there is one of the worst economic crises in modern history. You have weapons, distributors, the arms industry growing fat off the back of these types of decisions, whilst the vast majority of um, working people in the states are like now at like really extreme levels of uh, suffering economically like and the left is virtually silent on it so it's not just the fact that they are like wholesale like falling in behind the politics of the state of NATO and um, of imperialism it's that why can't people hold two things in their goddamn head at once like no, what I find most incredible about that is because in Scotland, right, Nicola Sturgeon can say, my hands are tied, there's nothing I can do about the cost of living crisis, powers are at Westminster. And you think, well, you're cheering on the British state sending huge sums of money and arms to Ukraine, right, for what is now a proxy war, and it's not being fought in Ukraine's interest, right, tell you that. Um. So, I, but there's no one to hold Nicholas Sturgeon to account. And in six months' time, when when like people are really suffering and so on, and and God knows where inflation is and all this kind of stuff at that point, um, no one, there's no one in the media, there's no one in the parliament who's going to say, well, hang on a minute, uh, First Minister, you supported um, uh, increasing the price of fuel and foodstuffs when you supported sanctions and arming. Totally. There's the cheerleading no, for sanctions is terrific. Yeah, and and but there's no one to say that to her. Here's the difference in America, right? All of the people who voted against, all of the people who voted against the latest uh, wedge to uh, to Ukraine, uh, they're all Republicans. There are no Democrats who voted against it. Sanders and AOC abstained. The rest of the squads uh, voted for it. So. Uh, but all of those Republicans who are presumably by that point campaigning for Trump uh, in a couple of years time can when people in America and America's fucking broken right so I, I dare to think what what inflation and, and so on is going to do in to a parts of American society they can say the Democrats and the left wing of the Democrats you did this we voted against the um, you know, sending 40 fucking billion uh, dollars. We were against, uh, you know, like prolonging this proxy war. We were against inflating energy prices and you were for it. So I just think that that's enormous self-harm, just enormous self-harm. And the only reason I can think that someone like AOC wouldn't make a big show out of voting against this kind of stuff is, well, she's the liberal wing of American society in general is more warlike at this point, it seems. And she it would destroy her relationships with the centre ground of her party. Now, I just think if you're going to go into somewhere like the US Congress, you're basically there on a prolonged protest. You know what I mean? You're basically standing up at every major move of the empire and saying, fuck this, I'm not, I'm not voting for this because this is against the interests of working class people in the United States and it's against the interests of people around the world and I'm not doing it, right? And it's just, I mean, it's basically propaganda. There's not, like, you're not, 
you're not going to take over the American empire by some clever votes in the, in the US Congress. That will never happen. Um, but I, I suppose it is what it is. I mean, to me, to be totally frank, this is the big stuff. This is the big yeah. stuff, right? Both in terms of class politics and in terms of um, it's things like this that will decide the future trajectory of human civilization. Not a policy debate about a Green New Deal, not a debate about tuition fees, which is also going on in the United States. Not saying that these uh, questions aren't individually interesting or whatever, right, or important. Um, but when you're talking about the direction of human civilization, the future of democracy, the future of the planet, the future of human societies around the world these are the really really mm. big questions and they are naturally the ones that um people should care about one of the things that i find almost more dispiriting than all the weird like suddenly jingoistic we must fight for plucky ukraine you know this i mean basic jingoism just the exact same shit that was used to dragoon people into conflicts like the first world war um one of the things that i find almost worse than the cheering of that is the subsequent total disinterest. People went back to talking about Will Smith and J.K. Rowling so fast. But maybe this is just a reason you shouldn't be on fucking social media, right? Um, but there seems to be a total disinterest or a total misunderstanding of what's truly important and truly historic and has real weight and meaning for us as a civilization and that which is utterly trivial and stupid um, or even just secondary. And, you know, there's such, a, there's such a feeling, I think, on parts of the type of left that the squad and the Democratic Party represent that, look, we can separate out questions like wages, unionization, uh, you know, sort of a kind, this kind of like economic and social agenda at home from these wider events abroad. And you can't possibly. And the reason that people want to separate those issues is it's quite easy, it's relatively easy in society to talk about, to, and I'm talking about talking about, because that's what politicians and pundits do. It's relatively easy to talk about trade unionism or child poverty or tuition mm. fees. You're not going to be told you're a national traitor for saying those things. But it's actually difficult to talk about imperialism, and I include in that questions like NATO and EU. Because as soon as you start talking about like foreign policy and its impact at home, You've gotten too big for your boots, right? You've started talking about things which are purely the prerogative of people in power and shouldn't have anything to do with you. And that's when people get angry. Like, and not just the politicians or the business owners or, or, or the big media conglomerates. That's when a kind of lower layer of humanities mongers, you know, sort of PMC types and so on, that's when they get angry because you've gotten too big for your boots and you're saying things which are dangerous. Like that's overwhelmingly the mood since the, the war in Ukraine started that the small number, relatively small numbers of people who are putting forward a dissenting argument on, on foreign policy terms are doing something dangerous uh, to like the health and well-being of, of society when the total opposite is, is the case. A few weeks ago, People were saying EU expansion is not even a thing. Countries are joining up voluntarily. EU expansion has no consequences. Now we're in a situation where multiple countries 
including Finland that shares a land border with Russia, uh, are rushing in towards uh, uh, NATO membership. Um, and you know what I mean? Those people are kind of silent uh, on that particular development. I'll say this lastly, because I'm kind of rambling on. Um, I was reading actually the Times editorial that came out two months, is a famous Times editorial that came out two months before the outbreak of the First World War. And it says, contrary to those sort of fear mongers who are saying that alliances between the European powers might lead to war, which is of course how this happened. Like you're one of your alliance partners gets tipped into a regional conflict in the Austro-Hungarian empire. And before you know it, it the war spread all over Europe. And this sort of clever Times editorial goes, Au contraire, the, um, the alliances mean that the war would be so destructive that it means that each member of each alliance is, is kept in line by their partners, right? No one will commit to a continental war. No one will commit to a world war. And therefore, the, the alliances are the very thing that, that are stopping us collapsing, collapsing into general war. And it turns out within two months to be complete bollocks. Um, so even before the dawn of nuclear weapons and so on, mutually assured destruction was the clever, clever idea about how you avoid wars. Vast military alliances, of which NATO is the largest military alliance in world history, this is how you avert war. And the, the evidence of history is that it doesn't work. The evidence of history is that we are in a period where, I'm not saying it's going to be two months, but we are in a period where um, you can see now... Uh, how a future world war could occur. You can see now how future wars, you can start to see the outlines in the South China Sea, uh, in the in Eurasian landmass where Russian power borders NATO power, but particularly in the South China Sea and in other points around China, you can actually now see how that future war mm. will play out. And it's just incredible short-sightedness that people think they don't have a right to discuss the, the diplomatic preamble to what would be a catastrophic global conflict. Yeah, I mean, it's really depressing not to end on. <laughs> That's fine. I think we've we've made up a little bit for uh, our failures of the last. last I week. think we've not done a pause for maybe like nearly a month and a half. Yeah. Very bad of us, but um, yeah, we'll get this edited and out ASAP. <laughs> <laughs>